Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah July. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Hey, I want to give a reminder to send feedback into live at asknoahshow.com. Joining me for the third week in a row is Steve Oven. Steve, welcome into the show. Hey, Noah. Thanks for having me back yet again. Thanks for coming back yet again. And also thanks for doing the feedback. So, Steve, I try to make a reminder for people from time to time that we have an all new way of doing feedback. And I don't know about you, but I'm really enjoying this. The community is always smarter than any any one of us individuals. Right. And we were just talking about that before the show. And so feedback works in one of three ways. One, you write in a question and I'm able to answer it. And I do so. Two, you're writing a question. I don't know how to answer it. And so we punt it to the community. And in a future week, somebody will write back in and say, hey, I know the answer to that guy or girl's question. Here's how to fix that or here's how to do that thing. And the third way, and this is something that's new and and largely thanks to you, is you go through every week and organize a lot of these feedback that comes in. And so when we find a particular person, we find a group of people that continue right in and say, hey, Noah, I really want to know the best way to, and I'm just going to make something up here, attach my HDMI camera to my computer. What's the best way to do that? And we get that same piece of feedback, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times. Then we can dig in and say, all right, we're going to do an entire segment on connecting USB cam or connecting HDMI cameras to the computer. So it allows us to kind of structure and serve the community better, which is ultimately what this show is trying to do. So our first email comes in from Jim. Jim writes in and says, hi, Stephen Noah. Hey, look at that, Steve. He knew you were going to be here tonight. I'm trying to set up some LoRa IoT devices for my remote farm monitoring. Now, I need to connect to a service that receives data from the devices to a third-party services for things such as graphing, databases, and email alerts. I'm having trouble working with APIs, MQTT, webhooks, etc. Is this a field expertise considered web development? I have customers willing to pay for a service that I currently that I can't currently provide. I'm not a programmer. I'm just an average Aussie farmer that loves Linux. If you could point me in the direction of learning the, the kind of person that I could hire, that would be great. Regards, Jim. So I would start, Jim, by saying that, yes, I think that this is exactly the kind of thing that you look for a developer for. We oftentimes have different parts of automation or different things that we want to tie from one thing to another. And it's one of the reasons that we're fortunate to have uh, Simon Quigley, uh, a, a software engineer on staff. And that's what he does for us. We come to him, we say, Simon, we need this thing to talk to that thing. And this has an API and that thing has an API, make the magic work. And he sits down and he codes and drinks a lot of coffee and stays up way too late and comes back with something that works. And that's really fantastic. Um, so yes, that's definitely a direction you could go. The other thing I would advise you to do And I would advise anybody to do this before, after, or during your hiring a developer. We worked with a company that 
contacted us and said, hey, we just need some outside insight. We hired a developer to do a thing. And the problem is the developer is telling us this, this, and this, and we don't know if that's accurate. Um, and now our project is overdue and over budget, and we're not really sure what to do. And so I would recommend that you at least wrap your head around the things that you're asking a developer to do enough that you understand what you're hiring him or her to do. And then at that point, let them do the heavy lifting. Steve, what are your thoughts on this? So as someone who actually works with uh, pretty much everything that he's mentioned, except for Laura itself, and, and I do have some knowledge there as well, um, I know how daunting it can be to get into this. I would say that it's not the same thing as writing code, right? Being able to make a webhook is essentially just a URL that has some extra sauce in it that is interpreted on the other end. And it's the same thing with MQTT. When you get into APIs, that does get a little more complicated. So I can see why if you if you started looking at an API uh, to make some calls specifically, why you'd say, oh, I need a developer for this. So I would say uh, webhooks and MQTT, that would be a good place to kind of take up Noah's advice where you need to learn a little bit about it uh, partly so you don't get uh, taken for a ride or, you know, I've I've definitely seen that where someone comes in and has just enough knowledge to ask for something and the person they end up hiring takes advantage of the fact that they don't really know what they're asking for. So they say, you know, you say, I need a webhook that does this and they come back with 50 hours worth of work, which is a, a, a gross overbilling. Um, and that happens because the person doesn't understand fully what they're asking for. So to echo Noah's comments, if you looked into either MQTT or webhooks, they're usually a single line of, of I don't even want to say code, that's not even fair, but it's, it's usually a single string that when received on the other end does a thing. So there isn't a lot of programming at all to be done there. And that is a good spot to pick one. I'd say if you picked webhooks, just to learn the basics of what you're trying to do, because all three of those things have the same thing in common. I need to send a signal and have something happen on the other end. And so webhooks are going to be your easiest way because you can you can learn to do that by typing it into a browser, uh, right into the browser URL, or there are browser plugins that will help you kind of learn the basics there. And then, like Noah said, at that point, you can decide, is this something that I should hire out for or you know, am I happy with the results that I was able to learn? Absolutely. Hey, before we move on to our second email, questions can be entertained at 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624 or through our new questions bot. Steve, have you seen this in the chat? This is fantastic. Um, there is a questions bot. And so if you join us either by going to geeklab.ninja and joining through the web UI or joining us in geeklab colon linux delta dot com which is our matrix room you can message the questions bot the questions bot is just questions colon linux delta dot com and those questions get delivered right to our eyeballs in front of our faces uh and and then repeats it inside of the chat room for everybody else to see so lots of different ways that you can get questions um to steve and i this hour email number two comes in from robert robert writes in and says i find that i'm having more and more ethical differences between myself and my employer it's getting harder to wave off. I've worked for 23 years doing mostly software development and some network Linux admin work. I'm debating about wanting to try to start a network administration company here in Oklahoma over the next few years. 
What sage advice or recommendations would you have for someone? I'm not opposed to working for someone else to start, but I'm wanting to move towards doing my own company. Robert. Well, the first thing I would tell you, Robert, is no matter what you do, whether you work for somebody else or you start your own company, you should start by making your decisions based off of a value-based system. When you tell me that you're having ethical differences between yourself and your employee, that would be a huge red flag for me. I don't work with people that are unethical. I don't hire people that are unethical. And so if I found myself, I woke up in your shoes and, and, and found myself working for somebody that I believe to be unethical, the first thing I would do is approach that person, right, and try to work those differences out. But it sounds like you've done that, and it sounds like you're drifting further apart, not closer together. So uh, you're wanting to start this business and you're wanting to start working, uh, owning your own, o- your own business. I don't think there's really any benefit if you're working for someone now and you're wanting to make a change. Uh, I don't see any real benefit in going to work for someone else first and then start your own company. Um, if the ethical differences are too far apart to the point that you're, it's like an emergency, I have to get out now. Um, then I might do that. Then I might go apply for another job. But I would be upfront and honest with that employer that, hey, ultimately, I'm, I'm looking to do my own thing. So I'd be here for X amount of years. And then I'm hoping to, to spin something up on the side. What I would do, assuming that your work contract doesn't prevent you from doing so, file for a, a, a small LLC or type S corporation. And what I would do is start with the things that you know you can do well. Every business is successful or unsuccessful based really on your ability to serve someone else better than the next guy. And it, I'll be honest with you, it can be a really hard thing. I've said this before. It's a hard thing to walk inside of a business and say, hey, I know you got a guy and I know you got a deal, but I'm going to make you a better one. Um, that can be a hard thing to do. And it can be a hard thing to do, particularly if you don't have any experience doing it. Um, you don't have a company or you've not done that before. It's hard to have the... the uh, the belief in yourself and the belief in what you're trying to do uh, to walk in there. And, and, and so sometimes prospective clients can smell that. Uh, so I would, I would exercise caution there, but uh, start with what you know you can do well. If you've worked in software development, have you considered doing software development outside of, of your, uh, of your primary role, maybe doing that on the side. It's the kind of thing that you could do at night Um and, 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 or work with another company that's already established and just do the software development side, right? So you could start with something like that. If you decided to get into the networking thing, one of the nice things, most offices, not all offices and certainly not large offices, but most offices these days are fairly simplistic in the way that their network works. They have a cable modem, they have a router, they have a couple of access points, and they have computers and printers that plug into them. If it's a little bit more advanced than that, then they have IP phones, which these days are almost always cloud-managed or on some service. And so again, they're just other devices that get to the internet. And if that's the kind of office that you find yourself walking into saying, hey, I can make you a better deal, I can do that better, is oftentimes a function of just putting the right tools into place. And so you pair that client with something like a PFSense or an OpenSense firewall. You pair that client with something like a Unify UAP AC Pro, and they're going to have very good Wi-Fi. They're going to have very good um, internet and, and routing capabilities, and it gives them room to grow. Uh, and then from there, you can start going in and, and, and being available to solve problems. I can't tell you the amount of companies I haven't done work with simply because they don't pick up the phone. Um, when, when one of the reasons, one of the clients that we had got early on in AltaSpeed, they gave us a call and I, we answered the phone and said, you know, how can I help you? And th- those days, mind you, right, 
I was the receptionist answering the phone. Then I said, I'll get one of our technicians out to you, which meant I got into my car and drove out and fixed it. And then I got done, drove back to my little, uh, like literally six by four office that I had a desk and I wrote out my invoice and then put it into the envelope and then drove to the post office and mailed it and then took the bank, the the check when it finally came in and drove it to the bank and then recorded all of that because I was the accountant, the service technician, the, uh, the receptionist, all the things, right? Uh, I answer the phone and this guy tells me, Hey, we have an event this weekend. We're a hotel in an event venue and our IT company says they can't get out here until Monday. We have an event today. I need you to come out right now. And I said, no problem. I'll be there in 10 minutes. Went out there, fixed the issue. We served them until that event venue actually closed down. And the entire the, the manager told me numerous times the reason that he worked with me was because I answered the phone and I showed up and I was willing to help him when nobody else was. Um, so that's the kind of sage advice I would have is is put the customer's needs first. Put yourself in their shoes. And what would you want from a network company? And cater to that and, and, and anticipate needs before they ever have to ask, figure out what the next thing is that they're going to need and then have a solution ready for them, build them appropriately for it, but have a solution ready and always be the guy that's willing to do, to go one step above one step beyond. And if you're that guy to the point that they never have to think of anything because, because Robert, the IT guy does everything for them. Robert, the IT guy always bills them fairly, but when they need something, Robert, the IT guy is always there you'll be in business for a long time. So that's where I would start. If you have more specific questions, again, give me a, uh, give me a call or shoot me an email live at asknoahshow.com. I'd love to go further. Steve, do you have anything else to add to it? I would say, so I, I have two pieces of advice. Um, having started my own business on the side years before I, I worked at Red Hat, um, I would strongly push you towards a corporation. Um, now, I'm not a lawyer and you know a, a CPA or any of that sort of stuff, but when I went through the process, um, I determined that even though it's more cost, uh, the LLC is just not the way to go because that that exposes you to a level of risk personally. So if you're doing networking or anything like that, it, and they somehow decide that what you did caused data loss because packets didn't get where they're supposed to go or whatever, you know, there's there's a level of liability you open up to, and a lot of people don't think that through very well, especially now that everything is so heavily invested in computers like you you could be opening yourself up to something that that you didn't think of and it would be it would be terrible to dismiss it just based on cost alone um where i did it was a matter of six hundred dollars difference which uh is to me that's worth the investment uh, and the second thing i would say is to be successful you need to know what you're selling. And I don't mean I'm selling networking services. Like Noah said, if you're going to go in and try and convince somebody you're worth taking a chance on, you need to know what you're selling and you need to be confident in yourself. Even if you don't have that confidence in yourself, you, you need to project that confidence and then build it by building your own experience. That, that confidence will come but you really, really need to know what are you selling. The the mistake I made and part of the reason why I didn't launch like Noah did in, in it was I thought I would just do everything. And that didn't allow me to build confidence in one area, even though I was a competent Linux administrator and all of that other kind of stuff. Not having a clear vision of what I was providing 
really is what held me back. So uh, Cubicle Nate in the chat room says, I thought LLC had the same liability protection as a Type S or a C Corp. When you say corporation, you just mean don't go and put your personal Social Security number and file income tax as a sole proprietorship. You're saying found a separate company when you say corporation, right? Yeah, I am. So and, and so to elaborate a little bit there, the reason you want to do that is let's say you go to set up somebody's network and you forget to set up backups and cryptoware gets in and it wipes out the entire company's uh, data. And so the company says, well, that cost us one and a half million dollars by the time we calculated for not just the recovery and paying the IT company that we after we fired you and hired the next guy to clean all that up. But then also we were shut down for three and a half weeks and this was the amount of income we had and so on and so forth. So the total bill is like 1.4 million. Who are they coming after? Right now, if you're Robert, the IT guy and you just, they handed Robert, the IT guy, a check and you founded a sole proprietorship and you put it in the bank, then they can come after you and anything that you own. So if that's a house, a car or whatever, if you have an LLC or a type S or type C corporation, they can only come after what the, what the, the company itself owns. And again, I'm not a lawyer and I don't play one on TV, so you shouldn't take my advice or Steve's advice for it. You should go speak with an attorney. But to the best of my understanding, um, that's the that, that's why you're going to want to do that. I, on top of that, I would say this. I see or I hear about, I shouldn't say see, I hear all the time people that have gone through the work of founding a corporation, but they don't keep business and personal separate. So they quote unquote, pierce the corporate veil. They take their company credit card, which is only supposed to well, company debit card, which is only supposed to be used for purchasing stuff for the company. And then they go buy their wife a dress or they go uh, buy a little toy for themselves or buy something for their kids. Those are the kind of things that if you ever get called into court and anything ever comes of it, they say, well, it wasn't a real company to begin with. He was just basically, it was an extension of his person. So those are all reasons if you're going to go the route of, of founding a company, even if you don't really, just for good bookkeeping, uh, keep all of that stuff separate. Our third email comes in from Barking. Barking uh, writes in and says, hello, Noah and team. On episode 241, you discussed Gmail alternatives. Thank you for the rundown. I learned uh, quite a few services that I'd not previously known about. I use mailbox.org that you mentioned, and I find it to be a good balance between privacy and cost. I also like that the fact that it is outside the five eyes nation. I take your point about fast mail for what it is for open business operations, despite Australian government rules that would also add that the Australian government also has the authority to place backdoors on all Australian software and technologies and companies are not allowed to reveal or exploit it either. My question, however, relates to how I can make my email more secure by the use of GPG. I currently use Kmail and I do like things, all, all things KDE and love Kmail's integration with the desktop. I would like to use KDE's Clitopia app, Cleopatra app, excuse me, for integration with the Kmail PGP capability. I'm finding it hard to locate an idiot's guide on how PGP works, let alone how Cleopatra works. Could you provide an overview on the mechanism for PGP and how a layman would set it up and use it? I know you're a Thunderbird user, but I hope you could give me some generic info or at least point me in the direction of a useful guide. So let's start with um, let's start with this PGP. PGP is a method of uh, of encryption. Now there are two types of encryption that you can you can go with. You can go with symmetric encryption, uh, or you can go with uh, public key encryption. Now symmetric encryption, the same key is used for both encrypting and decrypting the data. And so the two parties that want to communicate using uh, symmetric encryption. 
uh, use the symmetric cipher and they have to agree on that key beforehand. And then once they agree, the sender encrypts the document using the key and then the sender uh, and then the receiver decrypts it using the same key. Now with public key encryption or asymmetric encryption, essentially what you're doing is you're generating a private and public key pair. Now I, I see this get mistaken all the time and it drives me nuts from a, te- from a pure technical perspective. What one key does, the other key undoes. So you can encrypt with the public key and decrypt with the private key, or you can encrypt with the private key and decrypt with the public key. It makes no technological difference. Typically speaking, the private key is never shared with other people. So the private key is is kept entirely private, and the public key is the key that you send to everybody to encrypt information with. So let's say my private key is, I'm going to say BBBB, and my public key is AAAA. So I publish AAAA, and I give it to everybody. And everybody encrypts the information that they want to send me using the key AAAA. The only key that's capable of decrypting the the data is BBBB, which I and I alone possess. And so you send me the information and then I and then I'm able to decrypt the, the data. Now, in GPG. Uh, you're typically going to generate something like an RSA key pair, which is what you're using uh, when you're using asymmetrical encryption. So GPG, TACTAC full uh, dash key dash, uh, excuse me, TACTAC full dash gen dash key, I guess it would be, and it will generate a key pair for you. And then to encrypt, it's literally as simple as GPG uh, TAC E and then the file that you want to encrypt. So if you want like a basic uh, getting started with uh, with GPG, there are plenty out there and we can have one linked for you in the show notes. And I would suggest that you start there and kind of get your head wrapped around um, basic use of GPG. Now, I'll be honest with you. I don't use uh, I've never used Cleopatra and I don't use Kmail, so I don't have a lot of specific suggestions for you there. I will give a plug for Enigma. As you mentioned, I do use uh, Thunderbird and I'm quite a fan of Thunderbird. And so Enigma is an is or Enigma, excuse me, is an add-on, is an open PGP add-on for message encryption that adds uh, encryption to Thunderbird. And so it automatically, uh, you can ingest your GPG key and then it will automatically encrypt and decrypt uh your email for you. And so I'll have a link for you for that in the show notes. And the the last thing I would say is if there's, if, if, if you or anybody else out there is starting and you're saying, Hey, as I kind of feel the ground out for encryption, what can I do or where should I live? I'm going to give another plug to, to proton mail, which I know Steve, you and I both use. The nice thing about proton mail is all of this stuff is obfuscated. They, you can dig in and play with the keys if you want to and delete keys and generate new ones and all those kinds of things. But if you just want to send encrypted email from one person to another, from one user to another, uh, proton mail is going to do that for you where I would say that GPG is advantageous is that it works. It's completely agnostic to any particular email provider above and beyond that. You could, uh, use GPG to encrypt attachments and attach those again to any email provider, email that to somebody else, and then they would be able to decrypt that information. You'd be utilizing encryption and it won't matter what provider you're using, even if that's something like Gmail or as you put in the, their fast mail. Steve, you have any thoughts? I use uh, GPG primarily for attachments. Uh, I don't generally do it for the body of the email. Sometimes at Red Hat, it is um, strongly encouraged for certain types of email to make sure that your signature, like your GPT signature is attached. Um, and that that gets into a little bit more 
because uh, because encryption the GPG can be used for both encrypting so that you can't read it and also just simply verification so that mm. people know that it's come from you. And so um, it's very rare for us to actually encrypt an email, but it is uh, fairly common to attach your signature so that people know that they can verify your identity of the email that uh, that you send. Fantastic. Yeah, identity uh, identity verification and management. That uh, You're right. I hadn't thought about that, but that's uh, that's a great point. Also, I'll give another plug. That's one of the reasons I really like Matrix. allows you to do those kinds of uh, cryptographical identifications of people. Our pick of the week this week is a FOSS mobile app that wants your photos to stay private. It's called Stingle. Am I pronouncing that right? I think so. It's a FOSS mobile app that syncs to a managed cloud. So this is kind of interesting. Oftentimes when we talk about privacy, we talk about owning your own owning your own data and owning your own tools and certainly that's that's always my my first choice. This app is one that kind of splits the difference. So it is an open source app, but it does utilize the cloud. The key here is before anything ever leaves your phone or tablet, it's encrypted using sodium cryptography and so your photos are encrypted before ever they ever leave your device and that key isn't available to the operators of stingle so to latch on to our previous conversation here the private key is resides on your device and they never get it and so you're the only person that can decrypt your photos and so you don't have to worry about uh, strange things happening as a result of your phones being said fed to machine learning or anything like that because they don't have the opportunity to sell your photos. They can't even look at them yourself. Now, this company has gone out of their way to make sure that you understand how this software works. And they try to be as clear and open and transparent as possible. And for extremely privacy-focused users, uh, they have a white paper that outlines all of their security practices and gives you an overview of how the service works. If you want to see the, the, the source code, of course, it's open source, and so they have that available to you too. So the process is something like this. You create a Stangle account, and you specify a password, a passphrase. The photos, the photo hashes um, that, that result from that password or passphrase locally encrypting the device on the on the phone or on the device are then uploaded into the cloud. Uh, the photo then generates the public and private keys derived from that user's password, and the photo bundles uh, are then encrypted and bundled using that user's password or passphrase, and then they're stored securely and encrypted in the cloud. So the app again, it's called. I think I'm pronouncing this right. Stingle. You can learn more. We'll have a link for you in the show notes. A podcast.asknoahshow.com. Our gadget of the week. It's the Hulkman Alpha 100. So, Steve, I'm going to be interested to get your, your thoughts on this. The Hulkman Alpha 100 is a heavy-duty jump starter for your car. Now, you might say to yourself, has that guy lost his ever-loving mind? He's talking about a jump starter for a car on a show focused on Linux. Just, I know I'm going to tread on your attention span, but stick with me for a second. 4,000 peak amps to jump your car. It could sweep all your dead batteries up and start them on a single charge. Now, the jump starter is a 4,000 amp or 32,000 milliamp car starter with an up to negative 40 degree Fahrenheit jump start tech. And get this, a 65 watt USB-C PD delivery. So it's $299. It's available on Amazon. You charge this thing with, you guessed it, a Type-C port. So you take the same charger that you charge your laptop with and you can charge this battery bank 
on normal days, you can just use this as a type C as a 65 watt PD USB C PD delivery to charge your laptop and keep your phone charged and all of those kinds of things on a bad day. If you ever need to jumpstart your car, well, guess what? It's got jumper cables and a 4,000 peak amp uh, jumpstart capability. It features two USB-A ports, one Type-C, again, with an output of a 65-watt of PD port. It also has a 12-volt output with 10 amps for charging and powering any sort of 12-volt DC devices and features a flashlight with three modes, flashing, strobe light, and an SOS. So this is one of those things as I wouldn't quite go as far as to call myself a prepper, but I am a person that likes to be prepared for things. And anytime I can get rid of one device and have Another device that does multiple things, that's a good day. See, what do you think? Do you need a 4,000 watt, uh, 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 4,000 amp battery that you could uh, carry with you, jumpstart your car or jumpstart your laptop? <laughs> yeah, um, I don't know. That That's uh, quite big. The first thing that came to my mind is how long does it take to charge this thing? Like if you empty it, how long does it take to <laughs> Yeah, Yeah. Uh, you know, like that. Here's my guess on that. My, my guess on that is probably not any more than your traditional car, car jump starters. And I say that because the little wall warts that come with those traditional, uh, like the Stanley jump starters or the, um, the snap on jump starters, they typically uh, have like a little three, four amp, 12 volt uh, charger. And it's essentially just trickle charging that battery. So I would assume if you have available to you 65 watts on a, on a USB-C power supply, probably charges the same uh you know you charge it overnight kind of a thing so i guess uh the other thing that i'm kind of curious is like what so you said it's 299 eh um this would be something you could probably tuck under your seat i was just thinking like it's not a bad idea to to have it here here in south dakota pretty much everybody has a garage and so even though things get pretty cold here um we haven't haven't seen any case where i might need that but i I know having been up north in Canada, you have to basically have a block heater or something on your car or mm-hmm. else it, it is not going anywhere. And so I could see you doing, I could see you using this to help in that capacity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The, if, I, you know, I tell people when people come here, they're like, why is there, why is there an extension cord hanging out the front of your car? And I'm like, oh, it <laughs> heats the oil pan. Why do you need to heat the oil pan? Because your car won't start at 60 below zero unless you do. Um, but yeah, they, I, I, I see this and I think I throw it in my laptop. I throw it in my computer bag. Like you say, maybe you throw it under the seat and you just have it available to you. I see this as one of those things where it gets daily use uh, charging the laptops and the phones and those kinds of things. And just the emergency use of, hey, I have this big battery. Why can't I use it to start my car? Cubicle Nate in the chat room says he thinks it's going to be a feature of smartphones someday. He may not be wrong. In the news this week, Firefox 91 has been released. Now they're building on their total cookie protection and adding a more comprehensive logic for clearing cookies that prevents hidden data leaks and makes it easier for users to understand what websites are storing local information. Firefox also now supports logging into Microsoft work and school accounts using uh, a Windows single sign-on. They've simplified the page when printing uh, when when printing, and this is a feature that's now returned, uh, if you go under more settings, format, and select the simplified option, you'll get a clutter-free page for printing. I find myself using stuff like that all the time when I'm printing things like uh, boarding passes on the airlines. 
They have a HTTPS first policy. Now, this is a function of Firefox. Private browser windows now attempt to make all connections to websites secure and fall back to insecure connections only when websites do not support it. The address bar also provides a switch to tab that results in a private browsing window. Firefox uh, does catch up paint for almost all user interactions. And this means that you're going to see a 10 to 20% improvement in the response time on most interactions. Uh, if you have Firefox installed, you simply need to update in your distro's repo and the new one will make its way down. Valve has chosen Arch, obviously, for its Steam Deck. Now, we've talked about this a little bit in, in the past, but there was an interesting article this week from PCGamer.com that, that spoke to why Valve went to Arch instead of Debian. Because there's a, there is a, even myself, I thought to myself, man, if I was designing a device and I was going to sell a gaming device... There's no way I'd put that on Arch. I don't even put people's servers on Arch, and those are things that they have a dedicated IT guy to manage it. Can you imagine if I handed an Arch box to a known to 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 just a plebe and said, "Here, good luck with it." Right? How is that ever going to work? But the article went on to explain, and I think they do a very good job that Debian's mentality is primarily, "If it ain't broke, don't fix it." And so, as Steam Deck is being launched one of the things one of the areas that steam is is working in is an area of high iteration right every day something new has come out that benefits gamers the hardware iterates the software iterates the drivers for the hardware and the software iterate and in being able to 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 serve their customers well they need to be able to get those changes rolled out quickly on top of that Steam is doing something that, frankly, nobody's ever done before, right? Previously, when Nintendo Switch releases the Switch, they know what the games are going to be. They, they have a lot of control over the hardware. They have a lot of control over the software. And so it's, it's not really surprising that it, that it works out all right. If you're Valve and you're rolling out this device and you're saying to yourself, we are going to rely almost entirely on the Linux community to help us get this thing off the ground, and then we submit patches and changes where we see we need them, what is the most efficient way to do that? Arch quickly starts to bubble up to the top of the list. And I know many people that run Arch on their family's computers as they do family support, and then they just have a specific repo and they only push out updates after they've tested them and they're ready to push them out. So when I start to frame it in that sense, it starts to make some sense to me. Quote, at launch, the Steam Deck will undoubtedly need multiple small updates to make sure everything works flawlessly, some of which could affect the underlying kernel, not something that Debian really lends itself to. So Arch, one of the main reasons here is that there's a couple, but the main reason is rolling updates. Arch allows us to have a more rapid development cycle for SteamOS 3.0. On top of that, you're probably looking at updates in the graphics drivers and even Proton which could need some big changes too, which is where the layer that ensures that games designed for Windows work on Linux. Fundamentals changes to SteamOS itself aren't out of the question, and Arch Linux allows us to do that. So all of those things uh, make some sense to me. And Steve, I'm kind of interested in your thoughts on this. I know you run Arch in production on your laptop. Does it seem like the kind of thing that you would roll out on a product if you were making a product to, to sell to maybe your kids um, or to maybe a relative that was less tech savvy. I mean, I don't know why you wouldn't. I think the big, the big problem that Arch has is people say that it breaks a lot, but the people you're handing this out to, they're most likely not going to be running the updates. And if valve is curating the packages, which I assume that they would, there's no reason not to. Right, the technical people like you or I might get in there and tinker around with adding repositories or, 
you know, sidestepping Valve's official ones. But then again, we would know how to fix what it broke. But my son's uh, desktop runs Arch, and he doesn't need to know that it's running Arch. It just does its thing. And his is the last computer that gets updated. I make sure, you know, mine gets updated, then my desktop, then my wife's computer, and then his. And by the time that I get around to updating his computer, I've probably caught everything. And that's essentially what Valve is probably doing. So here's a question for you. Do you think that this has anything to do with divorcing themselves of any other company? One of the nice things about Arch is it's not controlled by any particular company. And so it's essentially what works. It's governed uh, primarily by meritocracy, right? Whatever seems to work well is what decisions are made in Arch. And so if you're Valve and really all you want is a stable platform. You had that with Microsoft Windows for a long time where Microsoft Windows worried about Microsoft Windows and you just worried about making your software on top of that. All of a sudden that changes and Microsoft starts shooting themselves in the foot. You say, I want to go back to where somebody else kind of more or less deals with the operating system. I want some input. I want to be able to make some suggestions. I want to be able to fix the things when I need to fix the things. But for the most part, I just want it to work. Does Arch provide that more so than 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 any other company could make an operating system providing that? I think if I was to opine, it would be that Arch is not opinionated. It doesn't care what little bits you assemble. It was meant to kind of allow you to assemble the various bits. Um, and while Debian is somewhat that way, every time that you get into distros that actually do distro-specific patching, which Debian, Ubuntu, Fedora, all do some sort of distro-specific patching, there's an opinion that's happening there. Arch doesn't do that. It pretty much just packages up whatever was in upstream uh, and couple that with the idea that it is really, really easy to make your own uh, packages in the AUR. And so I could see that being hugely advantageous to Valve the ability to create their packages and just push them into the AUR and have them available anywhere. You don't need a PPA or, you know, however else Debian might handle that. And I think that there, I think there is some quality of life from a maintainer's perspective that uh, Arch might provide. Fantastic. Well, well said. So there's a new infrastructure bill that has come out and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but there is a tech side of it. And I think it's important that we address it. So automakers are being pressured by the federal and state government here in the United States to ramp up the production of electric car production. Now, our U.S. President Joe Biden has said by signing an executive order that they're targeting half of all new car sales to be electric by 2030. And the industry is indeed shifting towards more battery power. And of course, this is a pretty aggressive time limit. So the issue becomes, how do we pay for the roads if right now Americans are paying for the roads for by via a tax at the gas pump? And so nestled inside of a 2,700-page document is section 13,002, and it's titled the National Motor Vehicle Per Mileage Usage Fee. And you can probably guess what that means. They're going to charge you per mile that you drive. The reason I bring that up on this show is as part of the pilot program, volunteers from all 50 states plus Washington, D.C., Puerto Rico, um, who drive passenger and commercial vehicles are going to be opting into a program in which the data from the vehicle's uh, onboard computer, the ODB2 port, is going to be collected and recorded and used uh, to bill the participants according to their mileage. And that rate is going to vary based on the type of vehicle and the weight. 
one of the issues I have for this is that the bill specifically notes that this mile information can be tracked via third-party OBD2 devices that can be collected via OEM-collected uh, telemetric devices. So in other words, that uh, OnStar-enabled vehicle that you bought that you didn't activate the service from, but they still have you know location data on it, the Tesla that you bought that you didn't read the user agreement and where it says that you don't actually own the software that runs on it, you're just renting it from Tesla, and they can use that. Um, or information collected from insurance companies. So that the the drive safe program that you got from whatever your insurance company is, and they had you plug that little thing into the ODB2 port, or you installed that app on your smartphone, any other method. And that's a quote from the Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, Buttigieg uh, any other method that they want to use to collect this data, they consider appropriate. And so it doesn't address any sort of provisions for privacy or how this data is going to be kept, or how it's going to be shared, or who is going to be prohibited from having access to this data via non-government or third party, doesn't matter, doesn't say. So, I, I like I said, not going to spend a ton of time on this, but I want to bring it up so that we at least have an opening frame of, of, of a discussion to say, as these kinds of things go forward, as these bills come forward, and as we're asked to, to look into these things and support these kinds of things, there is a temptation, even by me, to look at these things and say, the future is obviously electric, right? We have a nuclear reactor in the sky. At some point, it's going to make some sense to start using that. Now, battery technology has not necessarily caught up. Uh, obviously, there's some work to go with solar. But as we get into, hey, we have these computers that can go anywhere. IPv6 allows us to get access to those computers anywhere. And LTE and 5G and all the things allow us to access these the data from anywhere there is a very low bar to entry to start collecting this data and it is appalling to me when i rent a car and i see how much data gets sunk between the last person's phone and the car and then i go and start doing research for the show and i see how easy it is to extract that data back off the car and now the car itself is going to be collecting that data and we start to have bills introduced that are going to share that data with the government and third parties those are things that we want to think about very critically steve do you have any thoughts on on charge per mile being collected via whatever means necessary so i understand the logic behind it um I, I think I want to stay away from the politics. If you guys want to talk about it in the post show, we, we can chat a little bit about that. But to keep it on the technology side, um, I'm very curious to see how they're going to try and wiggle around the idea that with this data of mileage, they're inherently somehow tracking where you are. Sure. Whether it's GPS coordinates or whatever. And that's, that's what really, um, from a technology perspective... I find a little bit troubling because we have a, a very poor history in the West of mm, safeguarding things that that really should be safeguarded. And and one of those, the idea that you are you're paying. So it, it's harder to to argue against the idea that you're paying per mile because it's it's kind of like usage and, you know, some places the internet you pay for your usage and you pay water and hydro and based on usage like there's some amount of logic to that but once it goes sure. beyond that and and they're collecting metrics that you don't know and are i i would be willing to bet they're going to be collecting location data off of that that be, that's where you have to take a, a much stronger look at that and push back like okay we have to pay for the road somehow but I definitely don't have to pay for it with my privacy. 
Yeah, 100%. Like, and again, if they were saying, hey, for every mile, we're going to tax 36 cents or something like that. So when you go to a charging station to charge up your electric vehicle, we just add this tax on, we wouldn't even be talking about it. It's the fact that they that they literally say, hey, if you want to install a smartphone app, hey, if you want to put this OBD2 thing in there, hey, if you can just get it from the car, whatever, basically, we just want the data. That's where I think the real problem is. And again, not that there's anything to do about it today. This is just a bill that's going through Congress, hasn't passed yet. Um, but it's something that we should be aware of because the mainstream media, most people are not talking about the privacy implications of stuff like this. So, Sorry, I cut you off. No, I, I was just going to say that... Um, there's a couple of ways that you could skin this without actually attaching to the ODB2. Like, uh, just briefly, in Canada, when we go to renew our plates, we have to report the mileage. And so the gov- our government's already tracking kind of mileage between years or whatever. There's a lot of ways to do this that isn't privacy invasive um, that I think should be discussed, but I don't hear anybody talking about how you could, you know, if we go down this route of paying per mile, sure, but not everything has to have a technical solution like this. Absolutely. In fact, Tubit in the chat room points out South Dakota added an electric vehicle tax to electric vehicle registration. So they're just doing it exactly like you say. When you go to register your vehicle, they just add a tax onto that. Yeah. So I think I'd like to see, even as technologists, I'd like to see us pull our brains out of the how can we solve this with technology and just get back to like there, we conquered some of these problems you know, 10, 50, 100 years ago without all of this technology, we probably can figure out how to do this without making our life more complicated. Apple is in the news in a big way this week. Apple's plan to think differently about encryption. So the the, the long and short of this uh, of the announcement is that Apple is rolling out new features to iOS 15 and the messages on or the messages app on the iPhone, iPad and Mac are going to be getting a new what they're calling a communication safety feature to warn children and their parents when they're receiving or sending sexually explicit photos. Now, here's the thing. I think all of us would agree that the world would be a better place if people didn't abuse children in any way, shape or form. And I think we're all on the same page on that. I don't want to talk about that. What I want to talk about is the technical implications of the way that Apple is choosing to do this. So Apple is going to be using on-device machine learning to analyze images and attachments. And if the photo is determined um, to, to be violating their, their, their algorithms, then the photo is automatically blurred and the, and, and, and the child is warned. It goes one step further. If it's on an adult's device, then it actually reaches out to the, uh, the uh, the Center for for Exploited Children and says, hey, you need to alert the authorities because there is this image on here and this is bad. Now, again, I want to be abundantly clear. I don't think anybody that 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 discusses this issue is not on board with trying to reduce uh, children being abused. I mean, we're all against that 100 percent. But the problem is you it is technologically not possible to write a an algorithm that scans for certain kinds of material and not others, right? Like you can write them the algorithm today, but there's nothing stopping you from broadening the horizon. And I think that's where this gets really problematic. Steve, what was your reaction when you first read about this? I've, I've run through the gamut here. Um, the first part of me says, well, 
just don't use that application. It's the same thing when people complain about social media, right? And and some of the terrible stuff that happens there. It's like part of me says, well, just don't do that. Like there's nothing compelling you to do that. So when we're talking about using the iMessage service, for example, there are other ways to do that. So if you don't, I'm perfectly fine with a company being like, inside of this application, we are doing whatever it is that they decide to do. But once you get into the whole, you've taken a picture on your phone and it's scanning and potentially turning you over to law enforcement. Uh, we already know that that things have gone awry in the past with algorithms or people being falsely flagged. And when you're talking about um, child endangerment, those are sort of things you don't live down. Even if you're ultimately cleared of that, that stigma stays with you. And that that scares me a lot because it it's... It's one of those things where I say, well, treat your phone like I treat my phone. I leave my phone behind whenever I can. I don't carry it like everybody else. My son asked me today, he's, he looks around and he says, you know, Mr. Noah has that that thing on his hip that his phone is on. And everybody <laughs> else seems to have one. When are you going to have that? And I said, I'm not. I don't carry my phone unless I absolutely have to. Um, and so I guess I fell down on the whole the companies are going to do this regardless of what kind of outrage. So treat this as an untrusted device. Like treat this as, you know, something that, that you have to have for some reason, but don't do anything with this that you don't want that, that could be even potentially misconstrued, like taking pictures of your kids in the bath. Like I don't do that, but my extended family does and shares these pictures just amongst themselves. Like, Oh, look, it's cute. They shove their head under the tap and now they're completely wet. Like, uh, and they're only in a diaper. That sort of thing can be misconstrued in a hurry. And and I've, I've heard other hosts mentioning similar uh, type situations where they now shy away from that because they're they're worried about that kind of being mislabeled for something that that is not at all of that intent. You know, I that that has occurred to me in the past for the most part. I guess I get hung up a little bit even before that, Steve. I get hung up at we either have privacy or we don't. We either have end-to-end -end encryption and we don't. And Apple has come out time and time again and said that they are the leadership in privacy and security. And they are a champion for end-to-end -end encryption. And so this is what they want and this is what they're pushing for. And this is uh, – that's been the messaging from Apple. And so the only way – that that this type of service is even functional is if you can first a couple things have to happen first software has to be loaded onto the user's end device with or without their consent and so they may know it's coming with ios 15 but whether they want it or not it shows up so that's thing one that is of concern to me that a software manufacturer can push software on you whether or not you want it whether or not you want that feature b even if all of the even if all of the encryption happens locally and encrypts the the message and then sends it over an encrypted stream and is received on the other end and so it does perform true end-to-end -end encryption essentially what you're doing is compromising the end device thereby making the entire concept of end-to-end -end encryption not i wouldn't go as far as to say useless but certainly less valuable apple today says this is the this is the parameters under which you can operate and again to be honest i don't think anybody disagrees with the parameters. I think we all agree with it today. The problem becomes what happens tomorrow when Apple says when when a government steps on Apple and says, hey, we need you to broaden it to include this. I'll give you an example of this. 
In Saudi Arabia, if you go to buy an iPhone, they don't sell it with a camera. Part of the reason for that is you can't participate in a FaceTime conversation because it does implement end-to-end encryption and thereby violates uh, the government's desires to be able to spy on its people. Can't put it any more plainly than that. What happens when the government says, here are the new group of people, the LGBT people, that the, the whoever, pick your group, that we now want to identify, and here's the library in which... We want you to use and we want to be able to identify these people. If you don't do that, then we don't let you sell iPhones in this particular country, right? Apple has already proven a couple of things. First of all, when they said end-to-end encryption and they cared about your privacy, they meant until something else came along that they cared about more. Secondly, when push comes to shove, if it came down between human rights violations and selling iPhones in Saudi Arabia, they went with selling iPhones in Saudi Arabia. So if you... When Apple comes against a a government and that government wants to do something potentially bad, as long as they can make enough money off of it, it's something that they've proven that they're willing to expand their horizons. And and regardless of what the content is, I that's where it falls down for me. It's not truly your device. It's not truly local data. It's not truly something that is private, regardless of if that privacy is being used in a good way or a poor way. And I, do you have thoughts on that? I I find this very difficult because um, I've always had a very healthy suspicion of phones, but Apple takes a really big beating on this one because they happen to be the ones saying it. But I think that anytime that you're in a in a locked ecosystem, that's what you're going to get. And so I don't think Google's is any saint here. I I really don't think that we have any good answers to this except don't use a smartphone, but most people don't like that answer. Um, I think it's going to get back to the point where the uh, the people who who really fall down on the privacy side of things are going to be seen as tinfoil hat because they're going to go back to a dumb phone or like me, just not carry the smartphone except for when I actually have to for work. And you're going to look strange to everybody else, but that's going to be your only option. I, I agree with that. Uh, my, my my answer back to you would be that one of the things that's egregious to me, if Apple just had released, if, if the, the difference between Google is I can load a different operating system onto my Pixel. I can't load an alternative operating system onto my iPhone. And so that's where I think that Apple is a little bit more egregious from, the, from that way. They sold you this $1,000 piece of device. And a lot of people bought it specifically because of the privacy that came with it. And now it turns out that really wasn't that that isn't their end all be all. It's not all about privacy. It's just privacy until profits come into play. Um, And so that's concerning to me. It's also concerning to me because if you are a government or you are a special interest group, you can now place pressure on one particular company and achieve your means without having to get buy-in from anybody else because they just roll that software update out. Everybody gets it whether they want it or not. Everybody's running iOS 15 and boom, now this feature is here. And so by just like when everybody got their COVID tracking app, whether you wanted it or not, you can request that the app is turned off. But that's as, mo- that's as much as you cannot remove that code from existing on a device that you paid for and you own. That's where I, I just, I can't, makes me so disappointed. It makes me disappointed in Apple. It makes me disappointed in privacy in general. But it also, re-empli- I guess it reemphasizes to me why I carry a companion device, something that I do entirely, truly trust. And I can put all of my eggs in one basket because that's a Kubuntu device with Lux encrypted. And so far as I understand, there is no scanning tools of any kind. It's just an offline device. 
Yep, and that's that's about it where I fall down too. Like I I carry uh, one of my Linux laptops or my little uh, I converted a Chromebook and I carry it around similar to you. Uh, I don't do anything and I won't unless absolutely forced to do anything with my cell phone. Like people look at me funny. I don't I don't do banking with it. Like no sensitive information ever goes on my smartphone. Yep. Like full stop. I don't even sign in with a personal account. I have. A different account I use because I have a Red Hat phone, and that's it. Yep. Same way. And I own the company, and I, I do the same thing. Hey, Steve, thanks for joining me. I really appreciate having you. Uh, the Ask Noah show, the music in my ears, that all means that it's coming to an end. But don't fear. The show continues 24-7, 365. All of the back episodes, all of the articles and references that we use to create the show, they're available for you at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Hey, you want to follow us on Twitter? You can do that at Ask Noah Show. I'm at Colonel Linux. We'll be back next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. Asknoahshow.com. Have a good week.